You may be seated. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. It's uh, on page 1178 in those Bibles. And if you have a smartphone or tablet device, we're using the NIV, the New International Version. We are in a series big series. We're working our way through highlights of the entire New Testament. Right now we're in a mini-series called God's Prisoner, and so we've been following the Apostle Paul as he uh, travels by sea, and then we're going to be looking at him actually in prison, and actually before that he was in prison as well for a little over two years. And so at this point he's been in prison, we don't know how long, maybe three years or so or more. And uh, if you're uh, brand new with us, I just want to encourage, I hope you got one of these green brochures that says new here. And on the inside, there is a sermon application guide. And you can pick these up every week on one of the kiosks on the way in, right in the beginning of the rows. And there's an opportunity to take notes there, uh, as well as questions, family discussion questions. Normally, we're doing what the kids are doing, but the kids are in here today. And then we have personal reflection questions. And so uh, you, can, you can use those. And if uh, you are a kid in here and you would like, maybe you didn't see these, if you came in one of the side doors, you may have missed it, but there's a table right outside the middle doors there. It's worship notes for kids. And so it says, one of the questions is, who is speaking? I'm Pastor Henry. So I just answered a question for you. You can fill that out. Uh, but you can doodle, take pictures, draw, draw drawings. I've had, I've had sermon interpretations given to me by kids that were a drawing of what I just preached on. So uh, consider that. That maybe is something that you might want to do or take notes as you go along uh, as well. All right, we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into the passage. And the prayer that I'm praying is based on Isaiah 42. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to listen and to be led by your Holy Spirit guide us and empower us to follow Jesus in all that we do. Remind us that we are called to join in his mission. May we live as his disciples, shining his light and sharing the good news of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a volunteer celebration. We went over to the Marcus Theater and we saw Toy Story 2. We got a couple of theaters, invited Everybody who's a volunteer at Five Oaks uh, to participate in that. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but getting there was kind of interesting. Uh, I was going to meet with Hector Dalton, who is our, and, and his wife Beth, who is our um, uh, interim executive pastor. And so we had to be there at 5.30 to welcome people. So we're going to meet like around 4.45 to eat supper together, the four of us. And, and I sent them the directions uh, to the place or actually a website of the, the restaurant that we were going to. And we got to the restaurant and he had, he had asked me, are we going to have enough time to get there to greet people? And I thought, man, this place is about five minutes from the theater. I don't know what he's concerned about. I said, well, let's meet at 4.30. Okay. So we get to the restaurant. They don't show up. They don't show up. They don't show up. We finally contact them. It's not like them to, to even be late. And I um, contacted them and they're at the restaurant, but the same restaurant in another location, uh, in St. Anthony. No wonder he was a little bit concerned. 
So that was, okay, uh, so we ate supper, that was unfortunate. Uh, we got in our car, we got to the theater, and ev all the volunteers, nobody was there, because I was at the wrong theater. <laughs> so I contacted Pam Holly, I said, where, where are we supposed to be? She said, uh, she said, the Marcus Theater. I'm like, okay, and, uh, and prepared myself uh, for, you know, all the ribbing that I would get for showing up to the wrong place. Then Pastor John got there uh, a little bit later, and he said, I cannot believe the number of detours everywhere I turn. I know where this theory, you know, he hadn't put it into his phone or anything like that, but everywhere he turned, he said at one point, there were so many detours that he could not, he didn't know where he was. He got lost in, in the detours. And so we oftentimes say in Minnesota, there's two seasons, you know, there's winter and road construction. Well, the other way to put it is winter and detours because they're everywhere. One of the major roads right by my house has been taken out. And it's the way that I get onto the highway fast. So if I need to get on the highway, there's a certain way that I go because I can be on the highway in about three minutes. And uh, you would not believe how many times I've needed to get on the highway, that road, and I have to get all the way to the signs before I realize I can't, can't go this way. Uh, how many times? As many times as I've wanted to get on the highway. That's how many times. Uh, so detours everywhere. And, and um, a couple of years ago, you know, we get detours in life, right? Where we're on our way one direction and it gets blocked and it gets blocked by something else and it gets blocked. Sometimes those detours are minor. Sometimes those detours are major detours in, in our lives. And so uh, about two, three years ago, uh, we ran into a, a, a life detour, and it had to do with uh, Lois's parents and, and my mom. And so for a while there, Lois uh, was driving to South Dakota at least once a month to go help her sister out with some things for her mom, and then eventually we moved her parents here, and then uh, her, her dad died, and then we moved her mom into memory care. Uh, my mom, about two years ago, went from driving a car and being very active to uh, being uh, homebound and sleeping most of the day because of a heart condition that she has. And I turned to Lois at one point and I said, hey, remember when we were empty nesters, how much fun that was? <laughs> because it felt like it was gone in our lives. It wasn't, but it, it felt a little bit like that. And that's a mind for us, not for our parents, but for us, that was a minor detour compared to some of the detours that you guys are going through, some of you guys are going through, some of the things that, that you've been hit with that are really, really major detours. And one of the things that we find ourselves on a detour in life is it can suck the joy out of our life. It becomes the focus of our life and it sucks the joy out of our life. But the reality is it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to suck the joy out of our lives. Good friend of mine, uh, of both Lois and I, he and his wife, they lost their daughter. Many of you know this couple. Uh, they lost their daughter when she was 18 years old. And it was, it was a devastating experience. And they experienced the deepest grief that you can possibly imagine. But reflecting on it, about two years later, uh, one of the things that they told Lois and, and me, they said, it's like you're, you can run two parallel lines at the same time. One is the deepest grief possible and at the same time, experiencing joy in the Lord. And so it doesn't have to suck the joy out of us. And we're gonna to see today uh, 
uh, how in Philippians chapter 1, we get some of the clues as to how we can experience joy even in the worst and most devastating of detours. Apostle Paul is in a detour. And uh, we're going to learn from his life how we can experience joy in the midst of detours. So to kind of set things up, I want to show you just the first three minutes of an eight-minute video on an introduction to Philippians, because that's where we are today. And, uh, and if you want to watch the rest of it, just go to BibleProject.com, and you can watch the rest of it. So let's, let's watch it right now. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short reflective essays or vignettes and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus's story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness and he thanks God for the Philippians generosity for their faithfulness and he expresses his confidence that the life transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. All right, with that as the backdrop, let's look at what Paul says beginning in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, 
It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your prayers and joy in the faith. With, uh, yeah, verse 26. So, that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. All right, so how can we experience joy? What are some of the clues that we can get from this passage for how to experience joys in the detours of life. And the first one is basically a repeat of something we planted ourselves in last week, which is don't be surprised by the detours. Uh, the Christian life is going to be filled with detours. Last week we said storms, storms of life, they are the norm. Something we should remind ourselves of. The Apostle Paul, instead of seeing the storms and the detours and the difficulties as a sign that God was unhappy with him, he saw that as a confirmation that where he was is right in the center of God's will. Here you have the greatest missionary of all time in a prison cell. And he's been in prison now. If, this is the, if he's in prison in Rome, which most people think that he is, he's been in prison now for two, three, for oh, well over two years, maybe three years. This guy whose whole calling and effectiveness was to be out in the world uh, making a, a, a difference by planting churches, by proclaiming the gospel all over the known world and moving on to other places and then pastoring them from afar and setting up pastors in those places. Here he is in prison. His circle of influence has shrunk down to just a few, a, 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 a few guards that guard him and the word that they get out to others about what he is, he's telling them. Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense. When you, from, from our perspective, to take the guy that can make the biggest impact on as many lives as the Apostle Paul was making impact for, and to confine him to a cell, doesn't make sense for us. But from God's perspective, God knows, and God is sovereign. So I was having a conversation with an owner of a business that I frequent, and uh, in the conversation, she asked me about 
about my, my mom, uh, and I, I said we'd just, at that time, it was a couple of weeks ago, we'd just moved her into a hospice home. I said, she's having a hard time with the transition. Uh, by the way, she's doing, she's doing great now. Uh, after the first few days, uh, everything settled down really well for her. But she was um, having some trouble at that time, and I said, you know, it's kind of unusual because normally she's really, really content, and she's, she's ready to go, she's, she's ready to die. She's ready to go be with Christ, very content in that idea, because her future is secure, I said, because of God's grace and, uh, that, that we have in Christ. And so the conversation led to her telling me that she had walked away from God and walked away from the church, uh, back many years ago when her uncle had died. And she didn't, she didn't elaborate, and I didn't ask, you know, what it was, but it must have been something tragic that, that caused her to become angry at God and to walk away from God in the midst of that. And so we're talking, and one of the things she says, she says, you know, life is short. That's why I believe life is short. Might as, we, 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 we should grab it for all we can and, and, you know, get all we can out of it. And I didn't contradict her. I just added to what she said, and I said, yeah, and if Christianity is true, I said, then life is eternal, and this life doesn't amount to as much as we might think it does. And, um, and so because it was fresh on my mind and I saw an opening, and I told you last week or the week before about an opening that I flubbed up, I think it was right, right there for me. And, um, and so I said, you know, Christianity is a lot different, because I just talked about the grace of Christ. Christianity is a lot different than other religions, because Christianity, rather than in other religions where you have this path to God and you have to accomplish certain things to get there and there's a door, you can eventually go in and you hope that God will accept you. So in Christianity, the door is at the very beginning of the journey. And the door is grace, God's grace, something we get because of what Jesus did for us. And faith is what opens the door. And she goes, oh, I've got goosebumps going up and down my arm. <laughs> And uh, we got talking uh, a little bit more uh, about that. Um, but uh, the last thing that I said to her, in fact, I was just leaving her establishment and, and I was on my way out. And, um, and I said, you know, when we turn away from God when bad things happen, it's something I just said in the sermon last week. When we turn away from God when bad things happen, uh, we lose maybe the greatest hope that we, well, we lose the greatest hope that we had, and it doesn't change the situation at all. And she's just kind of nodding her head, and, and I left, and I'm hoping, and I think we will, we'll pick up on that conversation another time, and my hope is to say, you know, it's never too late to come back to God. And so that's true for all of us. Some, you, know, you, you can be attending church all your life. You may never leave the church, <clears throat> but the reality is you may have left God in your heart because of something bad that happened in the past. You're here today, but your heart's not really with God. And you've walked away from God. And my, my word to you is the same, which is it's never too late to come back to God. So Psalm 22, and the Psalms are filled with this. Psalm 22 is filled with anguished cries of someone who is suffering and watching suffering and is crying out to God and basically saying, why aren't you doing anything about it? So in Psalm 22, one of the lines is very famous because Jesus was praying as he did throughout his whole life. He prayed the Psalms. It was the prayer book of the Jewish people. So he's praying Psalm 22 on the cross. And he says in his prayer of Psalm 22, he says, my God, my God, 
why have you abandoned me? It's a Psalm of David. What comes after 22? 23. What's Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. And as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. God goes with us in, in the suffering. And um, we can, that's why we can experience joy in the midst of even um, the most devastating of detours. It's because we know that God is with us in the suffering. Another way that we can experience joy in the middle of detours as we look at what Paul says here is by making it purposeful. Now we know from psychology, especially the work of someone like Viktor Frankl and others, that if you can find purpose in your suffering, it really helps you to go through that suffering. You can actually experience some joy and you can recover quicker when you are going through suffering and you find a purpose. The problem is that a lot of times when we're going through suffering, we can't find the purpose in it. In fact, years later, we still, looking back, can't find the purpose in it. But the Apostle Paul isn't just trying to find purpose in being in prison. He makes it purposeful. He makes it purposeful. And you see that in verse 12 where it says, now I want you brothers and sisters, now I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. All right. So he is not looking around for purpose. He's making it purposeful because he's in the middle of this detour, this very difficult detour in his life, and he is proclaiming the gospel to these guys that are his, his guards. They, he can't leave prison, right? They can't escape Jesus. He's got a captive, he's captive, but he's got a captive audience as he talks about Jesus time and time again. Then Philippians uh, 1.14, look at 1.14, where it says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, that's a strange statement if you think about it. Because of my chains, because I'm in prison, they're more bold. Why? <laughs> Not because he's in prison, but because of what he's doing in prison. He's proclaiming the gospel, he's confident in the Lord, and that word is getting out and it is bolstering them, it's giving them confidence. He's making it purposeful. And that's how we can experience, that's how we can experience joy in the detours. We can use every opportunity, even the detours, to proclaim the gospel, proclaim it uh, by our words, talking about Christ, proclaim it by the way that we live, finding joy, in the midst of our detour. It speaks to other people. Number three, redefine your life. Redefine your life. We all will have to constantly be redefining what life is about for us. And Paul had an understanding and a definition of life that helped him to endure whatever came his way. Uh, he could be in the midst of the detour and he could be thriving in the midst of the detour. So look at verse 21 where we get his definition of life. <clears throat> For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's his death. That's life. To me, this is my life. My life is Christ. 
It's living for Christ. The corollary to that, if I die, I'm with Christ. So that's, that's gain. Now, the Apostle Paul states it. It's obvious he believes it. It's obvious he's living it. But it's hard for us to live it. It's hard for us to actually say and mean it honestly that for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So how can we, how can we own that? How can our life, how can we see life in such a way that we see Christ is what life is all about? One of the ways that we can do that, uh, it's not really something we can arrange for, but it's when we come to the end of everything. <laughs> you know, we come to, uh, a lot of times, to the end of life, or we come close to the end of life, and, and all of a sudden we look at all the things that we thought were so important, whether it be great things like family or things like career and money and vacations and it gets taken away from us and we see that really if we're followers of Christ as those things are taken away we come to the point where we see I still have Christ <laughs> and then Christ becomes that much more important to us because the other stuff gets out of the way so one of the ways of getting to the point where you say to live as Christ to die is gain is to have it all taken away and have some time of reflection, and to know Christ, and to live for Christ. That's one of the ways that we can do it. Here, here's the problem. <laughs> a lot of times when we are devastated and we have everything taken away, a lot of times we don't turn to Christ. And you know that. You've maybe seen that in your own life. You've seen it in the life of others. That in the midst of having it taken away, we become so devastated. We become so engulfed in our pain that our anger for God will not go away or our sense that God is not there. And so we don't see that what we have that endures everything else is Christ. I had this conversation with someone recently, but I said, you know, death, deathbed conversions do happen. I believe in them, I, I know of them, but I doubt anyone who plans one ever does. It's not a good strategy. I mean, there's the obvious, you may not have the opportunity for a deathbed conversion. But someone who says, I'm going to live my life for myself, and then as I get towards the end, I'll give my life to Christ. I'll live for Christ. Here, here's, the, here's why I said I, I, they're, they're rare, especially for someone who plans it. It's because if you plan all your life to not live for Christ, when you come to the point where you said you would live for Christ, you don't want to live for Christ. In other words, if you're at a crossroads in your life, Let's say you're, you're 8 years old, you're 16 years old, you're 42 years old, whatever. And you're at that crossroads and you're wondering, do I, do I live for Christ? Do I give my life to Christ? Or am I going to go my own way? If you're at that crossroads and, and God is working on you, you may not be at that crossroad five years down the line. It may not be a crossroad for you. It may be that you're so far down that. It's not that God can't forgive you. It's that in your own heart, you've walked so far away for so long that you may not actually want to turn to Christ. I just think deathbed conversions, um, uh, anyone who's planning to have one probably will never have one. <laughs> um, it's not a good strategy. So how do we make our life about Christ without coming to the very end? I want to just suggest a couple of things, and then we're going to actually pick up on that next week. All right, we're going to go a little bit deeper on one of these suggestions. So, one of them is pay attention to what happens to you uh, 
in the detours. Whatever detour you're in or you're recently in, pay attention to what happened to you. How the things that maybe were life to you, the people that maybe were life to you, or even um, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the sense of control, the sense of, of, of pleasure, whatever it was, think about how, since it's been, how easily it was taken away from you. And what happened to your heart when it was taken away from you. See your need for Christ before that moment comes. That's what you're doing. You're, you're looking and you're saying, okay, before these things that I'm putting my whole life into, before they get taken away from me, what, what can I have that can't be taken away from me? And what we have is we have Christ. So the other suggestion is at the same time that you're doing that, see the magnificent greatness and beauty of Christ and of what a life looks like that lives, is lived with him and lived for him. See what the detours do to your life because those things can easily be taken away. See what Christ, life in Christ and life with Christ and Christ himself, his beauty and his magnificence, compare the two and then cultivate, cultivate that life. Make him a priority or the priority in your life so that you are you're growing your relationship and knowledge of him. So, so next week we're looking at another letter from prison, Colossians, where the Apostle Paul is reflecting on who Christ is and the beauty of Christ and the all-sufficiency of Christ and his supremacy over everything else. And so we're going to park ourselves there and we're going we're gonna to look at Christ and we can compare it to the other things that we make preeminent in our life and see how they compare. But let me leave you with this uh, this morning. Paul's Christ-centered focus in prison was forged in freedom. He's in prison, and the reason he can be so Christ-focused and say, Christ, that is my life, is because when he was in freedom, Christ was his life. It's not to say that once he was in prison, it was too late. It's just saying that it was a continu continuation of everything he'd experienced up to, this, up to that point. His life was Christ, before prison and after prison. Number four, here's the fourth way that we can experience joy in the midst of a detour, and that is to expect deliverance. Expect deliverance. Whatever it is, whatever the detour. Now, this is an interesting thing because Paul is confident, but he's not certain. <laughs> he's confident that he's going to get out of prison, but he's not certain about it. And you see it as he's kind of working it out as he writes. He's like, I'm thinking about these things, and I don't, I don't know what it's going to be. But as I think about it, it sure would be great to be with Christ if I'm executed. It sure would be great to be with you so that I can serve Christ. Uh, in, 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 in this world and serve you. He's talking about it almost as if he has a choice, but he doesn't have a choice. <laughs> We're saying it's almost like that game you play. Well, if I had a choice, what would it be? I don't have a choice. It's going to be thrust on me one way or another, but if I had a choice, what would I choose? He's like, it's hard to choose. But then he turns around and he continues and he says, but I think I'm, I'm confident that I am going to be released to you. I, I, I really am confident that, that now he can't be certain of it because unlike when he was on the ship, in Acts 27 that we saw last week, 
He hasn't gotten a vision from God. God has not come to him and said, you're going to get out of prison. But here's the thing. He is certain he's going to be delivered from this detour no matter what because he's either going to be delivered by being released or by being resurrected. One way or another, he's going to be delivered from this imprisonment. It's like he can't lose. And it's amazing the confidence, the strength, the joy that we can have in the midst of our detours when we realize that we can't lose. And we realize that there's more than one way of winning. It gives us confidence. It gives us joy. It doesn't it doesn't erase the grief. It doesn't erase the difficulty. But it gives us confidence and joy and strength in the midst of the difficulty. One last thing. We can experience joy in the detours if we pursue a life on mission for God with others. And that's what, the Paul, what Paul gets to uh, beginning in verse 27. I want to read the rest of that chapter, uh, 27 through 30, where he speaks to them and he says, I want you to be strong together. And if you are strong together, what you're going to find is your witness is going to be strong. You're actually, the gospel is going to go forth by the strength that you have together. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This, this is the key phrase, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. All right, what's going, what's going on here? I'm going to summarize it for you on the next screen. It's in your outlines as well. <clears throat> Paul is saying, look, if you conduct yourselves in a mad manner worthy of the gospel, in other words, if your life actually reflects what you say you believe, that's what he's saying. You say that Jesus is king and that he's brought his kingdom. If you will live with Jesus as your king, a man or worthy of the gospel, the good news, and then you stand firm together, not just on your own, but together, teaming up, teaming up to this uh, and challenging each other and encouraging each other and equipping each other. If you will stand together, then what will happen is this will be a sign to your persecutors. It will actually proclaim the gospel, which is that apart from Christ, we're lost. And that in Christ, we have salvation. It's going to proclaim the gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, um, N.T. Wright, in his commentary on, on Philippians, uh, gives an analogy to this from the first century. He says, uh, Paul's readers would be very familiar with the kind of language Paul is using here. Because gospel... The word gospel was used by generals and was used by um, uh, the rulers and emperors and kings as a proclamation, usually, of a new king being in town. There's a new king. That was the, the proclamation of the gospel. That's the word that 
was used specifically to describe the whole message of the Bible. That's the word that was borrowed from that culture, that was used in that culture to describe that. And so he says, oftentimes they would be familiar with what would happen when a new general would take over and a gospel proclamation would say, this new general is the one that's in charge. And there would be people loyal to the old general that would want to continue following and they're going to resist. And then there would be people that would align themselves with the new general. And what would happen is if enough people align themselves with the new general, it was a sign to those that stayed back that they were in trouble because they've been resisting the new general. Excuse me. <coughs> because they've been resisting the new general. It's a sign to them that they are in big trouble. And he's saying the same thing to them. He says, if you will live as king, with Jesus as your king and you will live a kingdom life and you will band together, when people see that, it is going to be a sign to them that there is truth in what you're proclaiming. And it's going to cause them to reflect on their lives and to consider Jesus. And we know because of the spread of Christianity, it's exactly what happened. More and more people would see Christians banded together in the face of persecution, in the face of being put out by the rest of society, and they would see their strength and their joy in the midst of the difficulties of their life, and they would respond with believing. And then Wright adds this. He says, suffering will come. It's not like those who are sticking to the old regime will simply join in. For that period when it's, when it's unsure who is actually going to be in charge, there's going to be problems. And this is what he writes. He says, the world, the opponents of the gospel, will turn on loyal Christians for being out of line and out of step with the old regime. Try telling people with heavy investments in the third world that one of the major gospel issues today is global debt and watch the angry and scornful reaction you get. Try telling people who believe they have the right to inflict their military solutions on the rest of the world or who make a lot of money from making and selling weapons that the lordship of Jesus stands for a radically different way of resolving conflict. Try telling people whose lives revolve around sexual immorality that the Lord Jesus summons them to use their bodies in a way that honors the world's creator. Or in Paul's case, try saying Jesus is Lord under the very noses of people who are living the gospel that Caesar is Lord. Paul is, call, Paul is calling them to join forces together to be a witness for Christ. And that's just an incredible challenge to them. It's an incredible challenge to us to live for Christ no matter what, to live a life where we can say to live as Christ and to die as gain. So please join me in prayer. Father, I pray for uh, people who are here today who are going through a major detour in their life. I pray that you would give them, give them the strength, the courage, the comfort a sense of your presence that would wash over them, that in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of even grief, that they would experience the joy that we have in you, the joy that knowing that even in dying we gain. Help us all, Father, to, to live um, with Jesus as our King. 
and to be a witness to our world by actually believing what we say we believe, by treating even our enemies and those who are hostile toward us with love, with kindness, with patience, treating each other that way as well, that we would live out the gospel in our everyday lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could he say that? <laughs> well, he could say that because of what we're about to experience right now. So we're going to celebrate communion together. And in celebrating communion, we're remembering that in a sense, Jesus is saying, for me to live as you. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. So we're going to continue our worship by responding to God and to his word. And I want to encourage you to have those thoughts. Jesus saying, for me to live as you. If you're new with us, uh, we're going to sing a couple more songs. During that first song, people are going to be getting up and participating in communion in the front table, in the back. Take the bread, remembering the body of Christ. Dip it in the cup, remembering the blood of Christ shed for the remission of our sins. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come to the table. We have prayer stations open to everyone. Uh, this one is, uh, these stations are about praying as you light a candle for the light of Christ to shine in the life of someone who is far from God. That might be you. Um, someone from our prayer team will be back there to pray personally with you. So let's continue our worship by responding to God together.